tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. G'day and welcome to Australiana from The Spectator Australia. I'm Will Kingston. Consider this. The president is seven years older than the average life expectancy for American men, and it shows. His drug addict son is currently on trial for several crimes and may well face several more. The overwhelming favourite for the Republican nomination is going to court next year. He said he's looking forward to what will be, I quote, the trial of the century. Only yesterday, the 81-year-old Senate minority leader appeared to have a mild stroke mid-press conference, and only a day before that, a Democrat representative was, I kid you not, on the Capitol steps for a eight-hour hunger and water strike. Move over, Gandhi. I think we've become desensitised to just how bonkers American politics now is. To help me make sense of it, I'm joined by Texas's most popular radio host, the czar of talk, Michael Berry. Michael, welcome to Australiana. Glad to be with you, my man. So Houston is a heck of a long way away from Australia, so not everyone listening to this podcast will will know you or, or know your background. Can you tell us who are you and, and what's been the journey that's brought you here? Yeah, simple. Uh, I grew up in a little town. Two hours southeast of Houston, my dad worked at a chemical plant. My mom's a stay-at-home mom. My brother went on to be a police officer. I uh, went to college on scholarships. There really is a lot of opportunity in America. People say there's none, but we didn't have money. There was so much opportunity for me to go to school and do whatever I wanted. Went to law school from there, went to England and did another law degree. Came back, practiced law at a big law firm, Uh, opened a real estate company, did some development brokerage. Then I ran for office, got elected, loved it, and I got into media because I was doing a lot of interviews, and I found that I love what we do. This was before podcasts. You had to be on a radio station, which I still am, uh, and now you know 30 radio stations, but I just loved it. I loved talking about the affairs of the day. You know, I read history. I'd been traveling. I love culture and politics and, and these sorts of things and history, and it was an opportunity Doing what we do, you get to talk about whatever's on your mind. You get to entertain. You get to engage. And so uh, that's that's how I ended up here. Well, you mentioned history. America's got a very complicated relationship with its past. How do you feel about the way that America is grappling with some of the, the problems in its history? I don't know a nation that doesn't have a problem with their history. Uh, I don't think we're grappling with anything. I think what we're trying to do is appease people who are trying to personally benefit 
from something that may have happened in the past. My wife is from India and my two sons are from Africa. And we sort of laugh at the family dinner table. My boys say, you know, black people in America claim they're African-American. They've never been to Africa. We're truly African-American. We were born in Africa. We lived in Africa. And we have a lot of friends who are African, particularly a lot of Ethiopians. And we host Ethiopian event dinners in our home. And and one of the things that invariably will come up is about African immigrants who come to the United States and they're working in a workplace and the blacks who grew up in this country will say, uh, hey, you know, we're going we're gonna to sign a letter that says we hate the boss. And these people will say, well, I'm not, I don't hate the boss. I've been given a great opportunity. And they say, see, you're just a sellout. You know, you think you're better than us. You're not down for the cause. And they say, wait a second, I'm from Africa. I'm from one of the poorest nations on earth, and I'm not coming here mad at people. Why are you so mad at people? Truthfully, I, I think it's unfortunate. I think it's unfortunate that we talk about America's history from at the most recent 170 years ago, instead of talking about America's future, instead of talking about America's opportunity. We don't celebrate in this country scientists and businessmen. We don't celebrate leaders and innovators and great teachers and we celebrate in this country people who are victims and people who can scream the victim uh, mentality the loudest and the longest. That's who we pay. That's who we compensate. That's who we reward. That's who we build monuments to. And so the idea of valor and courage and ingenuity and all of these, they're dying. They're in deep decline. And, and when that happens, that is a civilization in decline. And unfortunately, I fear that's where we're headed. That hasn't always been the case, though. America is built on great men and women, and it's, it's championed all of those virtues that you just mentioned. How have we come to a point where victimhood is not just tolerated, but it is, it is valorized? There is a goodness to Western civilization, sort of a white man's burden, as Rudyard Kipling wrote it. And my wife being from India, I've spent a lot of time studying the British experience in India. So let's take a moment and do that. And when you consider the fact that Indian independence was achieved almost exclusively nonviolently, you know, Gandhi, and you, you mentioned, Gandhi's approach only worked because the British were such good and decent, honorable people. Was there, was there cruelty? Absolutely. Were Indians repressed to some extent? Yes, absolutely. Uh, but the rails were built. The schools were built. The culture was built, and India is thriving today as a result. And the English language that was left behind, I think there is definitely something to be said for that. But there is an idea in America that we're going to help people. And those are non-white people, those are non-Christian people, those are non-American people. And some people see in that kindness a weakness, and a weakness to be exploited. Well, if you'll help me out a little because you think I'm a little bit poor, what if I tell you I'm way poorer than you thought? Well, you'll give me more. If I tell you that it's been hard for me because I'm black to do well in school, what if I tell you that you're a slave owner and I should be moved to the top of the... So I, I think that these things sort of, the, the pendulum swings. And so there is this desire to make right all the wrongs of history in a way that you forget. Well, what about the kid whose spot you took? on the team, in the school, at the job workplace, because you were so determined to elevate this. It's a zero-sum game. Now you're creating new problems with this kid over here. 
So it's out of an abundance of goodness to make you know historical wrongs right uh, that is abused, frankly. You mentioned that the, the pendulum of history swings, and it, it brings me to the question, will the pendulum swing back to some kind of sanity, or will this movement of identity politics and woke ideology that is now embedding its claws into America's institutions, will that just keep getting worse and worse? Well, my kids complain about the Houston heat, and they say, Dad, is there anything to global warming? And I say, yes, we have global warming, and then we have global cooling. Uh, in the 1970s, there were predictions of an ice age by the same people who were getting rich today predicting global warming. Yes, I, I think the question is not whether the pendulum swings in the other direction. It's a question of when. You know, dur during the, the Great Depression, John Maynard Keynes, there were conversations about, uh, you know, well, in the long run, this will happen. And Keynes's response was he wanted immediate action. He said, in the long run, we're all dead. So it's not a question of whether the pendulum swings. It's a question of how long that takes. You're a student of history. I'm a student of history. You can go back to the, the, the fight of the Moors into Spain. You can go back to the Crusades. You can study Kublai Khan and Marco Polo. I mean, if you study history, you learn that there are these very long swings of pendulum. You look at the Chinese civilization. They've been up. They've been down. Now they're back up. You look at the Vedic people that are now Indians. You look at Catherine the Great or Alexander the Great or the Russian people. They've been up. They've been down. So I think when you take the long view, you say it'll all work itself out. We just may be pushing up roses by the time it gets better. You don't just know about it. Well, arguably the biggest swing in, at least in American politics over the last 30 years, has been almost the complete inversion of support for the major parties. So... The wealthy coastal elites may once have been proud Republicans and now they're rapidly Democrat and similarly the working class has swung behind behind Trump. It's mind-bending how this has happened in a relatively short historical period. How, how has that, that inversion taken place? I don't know if it's an immersion or an inversion uh, because what you've seen now, my dad was a lifelong Democrat, a yellow dog Democrat. He was a labor worker. He was a maintenance worker at DuPont uh, Chemical. And he was uh, he, he was very much a Democrat because Democrat the Democrat Party was the party of the working man in his mind. And the Republican Party was the party of the rich people. And so as a working man, you needed a, you needed politicians who understood the struggle of, of the guy that's putting in long hours and, and wants a shorter work week and wants some job protections and wants Social Security for when he gets older and wants educational opportunity for his children. and wants uh, security in the streets and in the community. And then there was sort of an inversion. So a lot of the Democrats of the 50s and 60s are now Republicans. And a lot of what would have been some form of Republican in those days are now Democrat. Well, that's a more complicated question. And, and I really think that what you see is where we started our conversation, which is race relations. As the Democrats went from being the white man's party against the black man's incursion, particularly black working man, into the white working man's incursion into their lives as they perceived it, you had the Democrat Party saying, you know what, if we open this up and can get blacks to vote Democrat, which Lyndon Johnson eventually was able to do, uh, famously saying that I've what I've just done with the Great Society will make the N-words vote Democrat for the next hundred years. It wasn't a man who loved blacks, although, you know, they tell you he did. In that process, what we started doing is elevating race above merit, and a lot of the working class Democrats moved into the Republican Party slowly but surely. 
And frankly, that had been going on uh, through the 60s and 70s. Reagan managed to capture that in 1980. Do you know what Reagan's slogan was? Interesting fact. Nobody remembers this. Make America Great Again. Ah, uh, yes. It was the old Merle Haggard song, you know, I wish a Coke was still cola and a joint was a bad place to be. This was sort of middle class, working class, you know, uh, uh, environment and values that Reagan had managed to tap into. Well, now Trump was tapping into that some, you know, 36 years later. It's a very similar coalition, working class, Southern whites voting Republican. Trump could have run as a Democrat or Republican, just like Dwight Eisenhower, just like Ronald Reagan, I think, and won. Uh, but this phenomenon of this white working class voter, white veteran, white law enforcement, white small business owner, and his movement across the parties over the period of about 60 years is the story of American politics during this period. Yeah, that's fascinating. You've mentioned Trump. We were always going to get to Trump. No one's cracked how to beat him, in my opinion. I think he beat himself in, in 2020. In the Republican primaries, he just seems to swallow other candidates alive. And I'm conscious it's early days, but the same thing may be happening all over again. Let, let's say you're Ron DeSantis, for example. How do you beat Donald Trump? So I was an elected official years ago, and I've been involved with campaigns behind the scenes, helping candidates develop their message, tell their story, present themselves, win over voters, organize their supporters to get out to the polls. And so I, I like to think I have more experience than most people in doing this. I was very involved with Ted Cruz from his first Senate campaign all the way through 2016 in the presidential election. And we were up against Trump. And Trump is, in the purest sense, the word is juggernaut. I have never in my lifetime, and I've studied American politics back to George Washington, I've never seen a phenomenon that rivals Donald Trump, not even close. You know, they told you that, that Barack Obama could draw these big crowds, Will. Uh, nothing like this. Barack Obama showed up at the Brandenburg Gate where there were already 100,000 people gathered, and they put him up on stage and he spoke, and they said 100,000 people came up. It wasn't true. I was not a Trump fan. I watched the Trump phenomenon. And then I've spent seven years, really eight, because 15 was where he started to rise, really beginning to understand what drove it. And, and uh, you know, you and I talked about the interview I had with Buck Sexton, and I made the statement in there, and I heard from a lot of people about that. I, I, this, I said, Trump is more than one man. Trump is a phenomenon that, that just his name is attached to, the same way his name is attached to a hotel, but you're not staying in Trump. You're staying in a hotel. It's just his name. Well, Trump is a canvas upon which many Americans thrust our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our insecurities, our optimism, our patriotism. So Trump becomes so much bigger. And people who get angry at Trump over a particular policy, why didn't he fire Fauci? Good question. Uh, why did he do this? Why did he do this? All of the, Why didn't he fire Christopher Wray? Why did he bring in Jeff? You can't beat Trump on policy issues because people who love Trump, who truly love Trump, they don't care about policy issues. Trump stands for something that is bigger than that. And he has reached the point where being a Trump supporter is part of your identity. You see it on Twitter. It's an easy way to see it, but you see it on shirts. You see it on caps. Make America Great Again is not so much a statement of, I wish to make my country wonderful again. It is a statement that I'm part of Team Trump. 
I'm a Macedonian. I'm part of this. So Trump really represents the aspirations of people. The way a child would, would say, you know, would wear a Superman cape. It's not about Clark Kent. It's not about that character. It is, I am imbuing myself with the things I like most about him. And that is what Trump has become. I don't see a road for, I don't see a lane for DeSantis. You know, DeSantis sort of first came out as, you know, I'm this governor of Florida and look at this great record I've had in Florida of all the successes. And people said, huh, he has, and he has. He took on Disney, he took on Woke, he took on the schools, he took on Black Lives Matter, he, he did all these things. And that mattered for about 10 minutes until he said, oh, and I'm running against Donald Trump. Whoa, it doesn't matter what you've done, son. You're not going to beat Donald Trump. We're not going to let you. And it went from best governor in the country to the most sellout, rhino, awful human being. That is a phenomenon the likes of which we've never seen and anywhere close. Reagan wasn't in that realm. And and so... Um, what, 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 what I'm hearing from that is no Republican challenger could possibly beat Donald Trump. There's nobody alive. I've run in my mind who it can be. You know, Chris Christie, this just bloated, bloviating bastard who I can't stand. He hated Trump, ran against him. Trump dismissed him, made a fool of him. And then he gets right under Trump's armpit and hopes that he'll be the attorney general. Actually, he was going to be the vice president, then the attorney general. It doesn't happen. And now he hates Trump again, and he spends his whole life criticizing him. Mike Pence, who was his vice president. Mike Pence, the idea that Mike Pence could ever be president, he's running for president, it's just a joke. He has no support. Or Asa Hutchinson or any of these guys. None of them has even the slightest chance, right? And, and it's all for the same reasons. They don't have a base. They don't have a group of people who believe in what they stand for. They're having to tell you what they stand for. Trump has this body of work that is so much bigger than any words he expresses. Every time they indict him, he goes up in the polls. You'll never see that happen again. Every time there's a supposed scandal, he becomes more popular. He becomes what the media is out to get, therefore we'll support him. He becomes what the liberal Democrats in in uh, the Department of Justice, the FBI, they're trying to bring him down. He goes up in the polls. I mean, it, it, it defies all logic. It's an amazing thing to, to see. I'm 52. I think when I'm 82 and he's long gone, I'll be talking about the Trump phenomenon. And at least then with some perspective of time, we'll be talking about something that we cannot believe happened. I love that concept of him being that canvas that people project onto. And obviously there are aspirations that are projected onto him and there's also a great deal of hatred. Yes. And for that reason, the, the narrative in America at the moment seems to be, well, he'll, he'll run away with the Republican primary, but he can't win a general election. Do you buy into that? They said that in 16. I said it in 16. I believed it in 16. And, and, and so, you know, like any country, just like Australia, you, you've got people, uh, you know, you don't have the, the presidential process we do so that everybody has to vote for that one person. But if you, if, you, if you think about, you've got Republicans over here, you've got Democrats over here, and everybody thinks that's what our nation consists of, but it's not. It's really partisan hacks, and then they have branches. There's some of these people over here on the Republican side don't even like Trump. And then you've got the Democrat side, and some of them don't like Joe Biden. And then you've got this vast mass of people, right? Just like swing states in our electoral process, you've got this vast mass of people in the middle. And the question is, where do they break? Who do they go for? And nobody believed they'd go for Trump. 
But what nobody, what, what, what the media and the Democrats and the insiders and the influencers did not understand is the sense of uncertainty and uneasiness. We don't trust our media any longer. We don't trust our schools any longer. We don't trust our FBI or Department of Justice. We're frustrated by our military having grown men run around as women in bikinis and say, now I feel happy. And that level of discontent, Trump became a guy. Everybody understood that voting for Trump was burning down D.C. Most people didn't understand is how many people wanted to burn down D.C. And so they brought in a hatchet man because they wanted this thing chopped to the ground, right? If your favorite soccer team in Australia hasn't won a match in three years, and you go, well, we could bring in this coach, but if we bring in this coach, he's going to fire the whole team. Yeah, bring in that coach because I think we need to fire the whole team. Well, extending on the, the analogy, the coach was sacked. He didn't perform. And then the team has had regrets and they want him back. I guess that what I'm saying is he didn't end up draining the swamp last time. So how is he managing to play that same card again? It's a great question. Uh, you know, that part of that is threading the needle in a way that Trump does. And part of that is really a statement not about Trump. It's the depth not breath here, but the depth of the core of the Trump supporter. Um, and that's where terms like cult are used. And, you know, the DeSantis folks, they go after the Trump voters and they say, you know, vote for DeSantis, not Trump. DeSantis is better and Trump can't win. And the Trump supporter says, screw you, I'm staying with Trump. And they go, ah, you're just in a cult. The moment you're telling people that you want to vote for you, that they're in a cult, you're losing, right? You're never going to get their vote. Now you've written off their vote and you're just insulting them. That's not a good strategy. And that's what the DeSantis folks are trying. When you begin to understand, and this is not a criticism, this is an observation. When you begin to understand the depth of the Trump support, you realize he can do no wrong. And part of that is because he earned his stripes. I mean, you know, he pulled us out of the French Accords, which were horrible. He took on the media. I've been to Trump rallies where he, they put the, the media out in front of him at some distance and they put him up on a riser. And somewhere along the way, he looks out at the crowd and he points to the media and he says, ah, look at them. They're going to say horrible things about me. And the crowd turns and boos. You wonder, you know, are they going to rip the media down from the riser and shred them to pieces? No, they're not Democrats. But, but you do start to wonder, you know, how does he get away with this? And the media needs him. And when you understand that, and when you understand that he understands that, it's this incredible phenomenon. Um, it, it's really been interesting to watch. I, I, I'm fascinated because it says a lot about the American people. You know, Alexis de Tocqueville came to the U.S., I think it was 1836 or so. Maybe it was 1824. But anyway, it's about that era, somewhere in there. And he, he went through the American countryside. And he wrote about American democracy. And he wrote things 200 years ago that are still true about our character as people. I mean, look, the Australians have a character of, as a people, there are things you know about them as people, right? Americans are just the same way. The English are just the same way. And when you understand the character of the Trump supporter, then all of this begins to make sense. But it's not easy to understand because it's unlike anything we've ever seen before. That's what makes it so fascinating. That's really interesting that you say there is still an American character. It's a cliche now to say how divided America is as a country. Are there common threads in that American character today that bind together New York, California, and then everything in the middle? With some of the people, but with most of them, no. <clears throat> I mean, 
look, I told you a little bit about my family. At dinner every night, you know, we talk about what we're going to have the next night so my wife can cook it. And one kid wants pizza and one kid wants hamburgers and I want pork chops and she wants vegetarian. We are divided. But at some point we will sit down and eat together, right? So we do coexist as people. You, you know, there's this idea of is America united or divided and we all need to be united. And there's a very naive notion that a lot of people in this country have. You know, I just want us to be united. Well, let me ask you this. If somebody says, I believe that children at six years old, a little boy at six, who says, I'm a girl, not a boy. I've come to this conclusion because my teacher was talking about it. I would like to have my wiener cut off. And three of my classmates have had their wiener cut off. And so um, I would like to have this happen. And the teacher says, I'm for it. And the school counselor says, I'm for it. And there's a doctor that says, I'm for it. And the, the mom says, I'm not for it. Should that still happen against the wishes of the parent? The polls will tell you that some number of people believe that the teacher should be able to help the child get his wiener cut off. That's irreparable, irre irreversible. That can never change. If you believe that's the case, I can't unite with you, right? If you believe that, a, that an adult can have sex with a 12-year-old child and that that child can consent to that sex, I can't ever find common ground with you, right? We have a, an immigrant community that is large, just as you do, who come to this country and continue to feel fealty and loyalty to the country from which they came. Some of those individuals, Ilhan Omar, have, have risen up in our government. And they'll tell you that America is a trash country and the country they came from is great. I can't find common ground with that any more than I can find common ground with a Somali. I don't have to kill them or they kill me. But if you come to this country and you claim this is a terrible country and the country you came from is great, but why did you leave? We can't find common ground. So I think you exist, but you don't unify. Mm, yeah, that's a really good point. I want, to, uh, I want to turn to the other side of the house, the Democrats. What do you think of RFK Jr.? He's an interesting guy. Look, 60 years after John F. Kennedy's assassination, uh, he's still the, the specter of the Kennedy name. My mother, who's 80, sorry, my mother's 78, my dad's 83. My mother can tell you where she was, what class, Coach Anderson's class at West Orange Stark High School, history, third period, or whatever the period was, when, when fifth period, when, when she got the news, they came over the loudspeaker. That Kennedy name and Camelot and all that, it's a myth. It wasn't reality. I mean, the guy's, uh, you know, screwing around with every woman he can get hold of. And, you know, there's a lot more to that. I actually don't think he was a bad president. He certainly wasn't a modern-day liberal Democrat. He was a much more conservative Democrat. RFK, I don't think, was ever going to be his father, was ever going to be his brother. I don't think he was ever going to be the, the popular figure his brother. He didn't have the skill set that his brother did. But all that being said, that Kennedy name is still very powerful. And that is first and foremost the allure of Robert F. Kennedy. And he looks like a Kennedy. He's got the jaw, he's got the rugged good looks, he's got the he's sun kissed. He's you know, he he has a, a spasm in his throat. I don't know if you've heard him speak. I was at the town hall where, where he spoke with Hannity the other day. Okay, yeah. So you I'm sure you noticed it. it it's 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 distracting and it takes a while to get past it, right? There, there's a certain shock factor. And it's unfortunate because there's a terrible neurological condition, which makes him not a good speaker. But once you get past that and you stop wishing he'd clear his throat and speak better and you listen to the content of what he says, he's the best Democrat out there. 
I mean, for pure content. Now, I get frustrated at Republicans who want him to be Donald Trump's running mate because he gets 23% of the vote and a lot of those are independents. His, his position on gun control and, and a lot of my core issues are just wrong. But what I love about the guy, and this I do like, is he is a believer in conversation and in disagreement and in facts. I share his absolute cynicism of the COVIDians and, and, and their fake science and their lockdowns and their authoritarian state, which, by the way, when all that was, I've been meaning to ask you this, Will, when all that was going on, I was getting reports on Australia. And I'm thinking, if Australia is a harbinger of what's going to happen in the United States, this is very disturbing. Because I think of Australia as a freedom-loving people that welcome immigrants but won't tolerate nonsense. You know, a shared political tradition. I think of, you know, a rugged out. Australia is more like Texas than it is even England. And and I'm watching these lockdowns. How in the hell did that happen? I just turned the, the, the interview on you. But how in the hell did that happen? Yeah, COVID was the moment in Australia's history where we realised that the brand of Australia actually was very different to potentially who we are as a people today. And it was really shocking. I think it showed this instinct that Australians maybe aren't that carefree, irreverent, larrikin nation that you were led to believe they are watching Paul Hogan. And they're actually very comfortable with What does larrikin mean? Do I need to look that up? Larrikin is a very uniquely Australian word. It means a, a cheeky, cheeky bugger, basically. It means suspicious it? of uh, L-A-R-R-I-K-I-N. A boisterous, often badly behaved young man. James was something of a larrikin, like a maverick. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to use this. Myself. This is great. Larrikin what? is a great word. It would be, it'd be the Australian equivalent of maverick. So, okay. so I, I think it, what it revealed was, and I've heard you talk about this before in, in some parts of America as well, I think a lot of people now are very comfortable being, being told what to do. I think a lot of people are very comfortable having their freedoms taken away. And given for a lot of the 20th century, many people died for those freedoms. It's a really troubling, sad element of, I think, the Australian character now, but, but I think you could apply it to, to most countries. It's a, it's a real, it real shame. You. Did it surprise you? Did, did what happened surprise you or did it just surprise the outside world? I think the uh, the severity of it surprised me. I think, so for example, you know, if you live in Sydney and you try to get a beer after 10 o'clock, it's incredibly difficult. You know, if you try to get into a bar and you've had one beer, you, you know, you called a drunk and you're not allowed in. If you're not wearing a helmet when you're riding a bike, you will be locked up. It's, it's a very authoritarian moment in this country. Uh, so, so it didn't surprise me, but I think this was the culmination of a trend that's been been probably playing out for the last 20 to 30 years in Australia. You know, what's interesting about that, and, and look, I mean, as, as you mentioned, Crocodile Dundee, that had such an effect, you know, the outback, the image of Australia, particularly in the United States, Texans particularly, we, we sort of gravitate to the Australian people and the Australian mindset and these rugged people and these, you know, this barren land and, and they're tough. And then when you study their history and, and, you know, these are really the toughest people leaving England and, you know, off to, and there's kind of an outlaw, but in a charming way. And then you see this and, and you know, it, it went from kind of these, these sort of Ruby Ridge folks. It, it went from a kind of isolationist, rugged outdoorsman to, what we would expect as a New York City resident wanting big government to solve our problems, that was a shock to me. I mean, that, that was a shock, a disappointment, but an absolute shock to me. 
I'm going to uh, to round out the conversation there. We're at time, Michael, because I think that is a really powerful message to leave Australia on that what happened during COVID really did have an effect. And I think it's something we need to think about very carefully as a country. Michael's show is a great way to stay abreast of what's happening in American politics. If you follow the Michael Berry show on your podcast app, listen to his full daily shows, as well as these short bite-sized summaries of the breaking news of the day, which I, I absolutely love. Michael, big fan of what you do. Thank you very much for coming on Australiana. Appreciate you, buddy. Thanks for letting me talk. I appreciate it. Wow. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Australiana. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you really enjoyed the show, head to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Sign up for a digital subscription today and you'll get your first month absolutely free.